Welcome to Safe Radio, offering hope, health, and healing in these challenging times. My name is Ian Bergen. I have the honor of co-hosting this broadcast with Jim Derrick, who is the founder and former president of the SAFE Coalition. SAFE is a grassroots nonprofit organization whose mission is to support individuals and their families as they struggle with the negative consequences of substance misuse and the mental health challenges that so often accompany this disease. Jim's beautiful son, Jack, recently lost his battle, leaving behind a grieving family. Jim knows that by sharing Jack's story and its painful consequences, he lets others know they are not alone and does so much to end the stigma that so often prevents people from getting help. The tragedy of substance misuse is that it impacts all who love and cherish the ones struggling with the disease. That includes grandparents, parents, children, siblings. It manages to break the hearts of a lot of people along the way. To that end, Jim has created a family support center at SAFE, offering hope and encouragement when people need it most, always with the message, you are not alone. As a former educator, I have read way too many obituaries of my former students who lost the battle of addiction. Jim and I both felt it was so important to speak with our guest today. This young woman has opened a sober house for women in recovery called Grit and Grace. The essence of her mission is captured in a few words. Through compassion and empathy, we open our hearts to each individual's pain, struggles, and disappointments. And so we welcome Kristen Silva here today, who has the courage to share her story as we begin and to tell us what the inspiration was for Grit and Grace. And um, we'll ask you, will you start with that and sort of tell us how this all came about? How did you manage to make all of this happen? What was your motivation? Um, I would love to, but first I just wanted to thank you both so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity um, to share on this topic, which is very near and dear to my heart. Um, Grit and Grace, the name was... You know, it came to me at maybe two o'clock in the morning one night when I couldn't sleep. Um, I had been, I had wanted to open up a sober house for some time. I am a woman in recovery. I have been sober for 10 years, October 24th. I just recently celebrated double digits. Congratulations. It's also my birthday, so that's exciting. (laughs) And, you know, being active in the the recovery world, part of, Part of my duty as a recovered woman um, is to help others. And so I I helped many women in sober houses in the area. um, And and I was sad. The truth is I was sad to see, uh, number one, just that there's not enough. There's not enough housing, um, safe, affordable housing for women who need to transition back into the community but are not ready to go home. Right. but also that some of the houses in the area were, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring my daughter there. Mm-hmm. If ever I needed to bring my daughter, it, it broke my heart to think that, I, that these are the types of places that people's daughters and wives and sisters and aunts are going to. Right. So always in my heart, I knew, I knew the need. Um, I, I was, my family was growing at the time. I have um, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a 15-year-old. So I was home taking care of my babies but I knew when the time was right that I was gonna I was gonna try I'm gonna try like hell um 
my husband opened up a house before me and I was a, I was a little jealous, <laughs> but I knew I needed to be home with my babies, but it was actually probably the best thing that ever happened because I got a front row seat to see what it took, not just to run a house, but to build a house, to everything that goes um, in the, 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 the background of that, like the MASH certification, insurance issues, um, resources that are available labs that could or could not come in. Sure. So I, I feel like I, I learned off stage a little bit. Some of his growing pains helped to prepare me. You know, Kristen, uh, thank you for that. And, and, and I want to extend my welcome as well. I am so happy that you personally are involved and you personally have opened this, but also that we've added to the stock of women's sober home living in the area, quality sober home living. Women are, as you know firsthand, and I know from being in the space for a while, are really underserved uh, in the substance use disorder treatment market, if you will. Um, And so this is an important addition. But I do want to set the stage for people that are tuning in that aren't clear about some of the terms we're using. Um, A sober home is part of a continuum of care. Can you talk a little bit about that continuum of care and where a sober home fits in? That's a great question. So, you know, a sober home is it's a house. It's it's meant to be transitional. Um, it is privately paid for, meaning that the resident is the person who pays. It is not funded by any government source. It's not billed to insurance. Um, and basically, we are the bridge between treatment and independent, fully independent living. Um, there are halfway houses, which are the a step above us. Um, those have those are staffed, I guess. They are facilities. Um, a sober home is a home-like setting. That's the intention. Is it supposed to be a home-like setting to offer transitional housing? And I, I always thought that the most important phase of anyone's treatment would be the actual treatment, you know, residential or intensive outpatient treatment that you lasts anywhere from 30, 60, or 90 days. But I've since become a little more educated and realized that the real money's made when it comes to recovery, when you reintegrate into the world uh, in a new sober body, with a new sober mind, in a new sober community of people, how do I navigate life's challenges? I get fired, I get laid off, I have a bad day, and my go-to coping mechanism used to be to get high or drink alcohol, and that's no longer an option. So how do I manage to do that? And that's really what this communal uh, activity is centered on, right, is, is reintegrating people into the world with a new understanding of how to navigate life's ups and downs. You're, you're not wrong. And I think sometimes what happens is that if it's not a great sober house, you don't get that. Right. Right. So you could go to a sober house and pay your rent and provide, um, you know, negative urine analysis and talk screens and, and go about your day. I, I don't know how that really prepares a person for the life's challenges that you were just talking about is that they're going to have a relationship issue. They're going to have um, a roadblock in the way of something that they had their heart set on. They're going to get fired. They're going to have somebody that they love pass away. If you're not living in the middle of a house filled with people who love and care about you, then you, you might as well be alone. That was one of the things I was going to ask you. I think in terms of informing people and, and getting rid of the stigma, it's sometimes we only see those individuals as the disease. We don't see the the faces and the people behind it. 
and I think it's important for people to know, um, just like you always wanted people to know who Jack was behind the disease, this yeah. vibrant, but a lot of women who come to a sober home have, have had dealt with a lot of trauma in their lives. Can you speak to the, you talk about the pain and the struggle. When they come into that place, they're carrying a lot in there. Can you speak a little bit about how substances sometimes are just used to sort of soothe and heal wounds? And, and sure. uh, can you speak a little bit about the people behind it who come into to the sober house? Yes, I would say the majority of the women who cross the threshold at Grit and Grace have some underlying trauma. Yeah. Um, I mean, never mind the guilt and the shame and the remorse that comes with active, um, active addiction, right? And the stigma that just exists in our world because, you know, it, it's very hard to love somebody who is struggling with substance use disorder because our symptoms are, you know, they, they scream moral, Right. 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 You're wrong. You're bad. You're, you know, that's just based on a world of ignorance, not fully understanding the complexity of the mental and the neurological components that happen with substance use disorder. But as far as the women who come, they are broken. Yeah. Yeah. They are broken. And it is, you know, like I just I, I have been very fortunate that I have been able to carry how I felt 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I felt so broken, it's not left me. And so it allows me to really tap into like the compassion and the empathy and the dignity that like the moment demands. Um, these women deserve it. And um, I work diligently to provide it. And I also make sure that I set the tone in my house that like we are all arriving here broken and that I do not want to be a house that breaks anybody anymore. Yeah. And so we really do expect a lot out of our residents in terms of their behavior, their compassion, their empathy. And I, I know, you know, sometimes that's a tall order. But, but isn't a lot of it, too, it's, it's that you, you spoke about it so eloquently. When people make mistakes and they make bad decisions and they're dealing with guilt and shame, is, is a part of the way you frame if things in the sober house around self-compassion and forgiveness for themselves and to say, you know what, you are so good inside, and to help them understand that, is that a big part of the mission and what you... It is, and we, whenever I hear a resident speaking negatively about themselves, we, we all kind of have um, started to use this phrasing, don't talk about my friend like That's that. That's it, perfect. <laughs> don't you talk about my friend like that. I love it. Don't you dare. And um, we had a, a woman come to the house on Sunday. She, she hosted a, a paint event. It was beautiful. I just was so taken aback by how negative we all were, how critical we were of our work. Mm -hmm. And it, and then we all stepped out of the room, and when we came back in, it was like we had seen it through different eyes. But how critical, even still, me today, you mm -hmm. know, 10 years sober, that that negative voice is loud and it is pronounced. Yeah. And so, yes, do they come to the table really just hating who they are? Yeah. So how do you help them yeah. through that? It's to just one day at a time. My, for me, the most important thing is that I try to help them put out the little fires. Because mm. the, the, the loathing, the, the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the dopamine that's just oh, not being yes. pr produced at that time. Right, right. You know, I have to try to, I, I'm just helping them to put out all these little fires. Sure. Because how else am I going to just start to like myself right. again? Right. You know, feel hope. 
I remind everybody we're speaking with Kristen Silva, who is the owner and proprietor of Grit and Grace Sober Living for Women here in Attleboro. My name's Jim Derrick. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Ian Bergen, and this is Safe Radio. And I do want to give your contact information for people that may be sitting there saying, gee, I wish I could get a glimpse into this home. Go to gritandgracesoberlivingforwomen.org, just the way it's written. gritandgracesoberlivingforwomen.org. Take a look at the website. It's a beautiful website, and you'll get to see, actually, the house. And that leads me to um, kind of follow on to what you were talking about, people in their worst moments. And, you know, Krista, I have to say, I watched you talking about that, and I saw the tears and the emotion come from you, which made me emotional because it's the people behind Mm -hmm. these sober homes that make them what they are. You can, you can, you know, you can't put lipstick on a pig, as they say. (laughs) You got to start with good people. And I can, I am sitting across the table from one, and it, it just touched me, really, really touched me because, as you said. You know, 10 years seems like a long time, but you, you, you're really linked back to the way you felt then. And you, and you don't forget it. And you use that as your barometer for the way you, you behave now. And that's just very moving to me, um, that connection. But I, do, I also want people to take a look at this website because you will see that the house is spectacularly is right, yeah. bright, uh, clean, uh, looks like brand, you know, completely remodeled with new hardwood floors. It's important, isn't it, to get to help lift people up by giving them good surroundings. I go to that house and I hang out there. I love it. <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. It's it's the the vibe. It's very peaceful, soothing. Um, and so that did come a little bit from my real estate background. So I work. I am a real estate agent, and I have worked um, with stagers. Oh right, of and course. So yeah. I did have. Oh, I this, love those TV shows. This stager in mind who, um, she she had staged a home for me, and she just did such a beautiful job. So I I gave her, I gave her my credit card and said, make it beautiful. And then I told my husband to look away, <laughs> <laughs> and she did her thing, and it just. When you walk in, you just you feel it like there's healing in that yeah. house. I, I do want to give a shout out to your husband. His name's Dominic, and he owns Hope Street Sober Living in Attleboro. And um, I got a chance to spend about an hour with him on the phone when he was opening, and I know his reputation. And once again, these are these are two people that are just killing in the sober home living environment. Um, again, the people behind it. Do- Dominic and Mike Kinson, who um, right. own that house together, I have to tell you that my house is is walking you know in their footsteps i get it that i saw what they had and i wanted so badly for there to be a woman's house that had that type of structure and great segue in the radio business she is ready for her own show because (laughs) that's exactly where i was headed um and i didn't mean to cut you off but i want to help you amplify on that um tell us more about the structure of sober sober living and why it's important Right. And that's a great point because, you know, you can run a sober house and have all these rules. And when people say why, I say, because I said so. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I don't know that that's an effective um, right. communication tactic to get people to, to kind of comply. Like, yeah. I want you to drink the Kool-Aid. Right. I want you to understand that these rules are not here just because I said so. Mm-hmm. That there's some deep spiritual underlying reasons for these for these expectations. Right. So in terms of the structure of my house 
when they call, I right off right off of the rip, I tell them we are a highly structured recovery based house. So you need to make a decision about whether or not you're up for what the expectations are. Because I don't want anybody to come, and you know it, it's it's chaotic, it's stressful, it you know to come and unpack and go. Never mind, <laughs> this is not what I'm looking for. Right. And and not everybody needs the structure. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. So the structure that I'm talking about is that there's curfews. There are assigned chores. Your bed is to be made. We are attending between five and six meetings a week. Um, we do break it up between AA and NA um, just to touch upon all the, you know, all the personalities in the house. But you are a 12-step house. Yes. Got it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's they required. Have a, they're yep. required to have a sponsor, mm-hmm. a home group um, to get active in that group. And it's a working house. Right. The idea is that we're trying to, again, I, I can only tap, tap into a, a clarity that I didn't have back in the day. Why did I keep going to a substance that I knew was just destroying me from the inside out? And it was because I didn't like who I was mm-hmm. because I wasn't the woman I was supposed to be. I wasn't the mother I was supposed to be, the sister, the daughter, the friend. And so again, that lives in my body. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so closely attached to the feelings I had when I lived in that mm-hmm. place, in that mm-hmm. dark place. And so I'm trying to help them find purpose. And that is a job. And, and shame, <laughs> shame and guilt really do play a big part in the cycle of substance use, don't they? Uh, of course. Because you know, if I wake up in the morning and I say, gee, I've been giving it a good shot, but here I go again, and I pull back, you know, all of that, I pull forward all of that guilt and shame that have been nagging me since I've been using because, again, of the behavioral component that goes along with substance use disorder is not a pleasant one usually. So uh, I pull that forward. It, it It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where I just say the heck with it. I'm just going to go ahead and use. I might as well. I'm not going to. I'll never be worth it. There? I'll never be worth Who it. Who could sit in that place right. without a, a solution or without hope for very long? Like the, the human body demands survival Mm -hmm. in that moment how do you survive just the heaviness and the burden of the guilt and the shame and and the and the pain and also it's it's your brain just Mm -hmm. it's kind of stuck in this loop i watched my son suffer under that and um and it was uh very difficult to watch because of course those of us that love people that are struggling Uh, You may think that there's this huge cavern between you and your loved ones, but the people that love you are much closer Mm. to your heart than you realize. And it just takes effort. Hope. Teeny tiniest bit of hope. Right. To keep that, to to, to close that window, in other words, to bring you back together. And um, you'll find that you're you're loved and supported. But I I love that rising. I get that sense that at your house... The, the goal is to have that as a community to rise that tide so that people feel kind of a collective sense of pride. You don't just get that going to meetings. You know, it's not it's not just the attendance. And I think that sometimes that can get lost in the wayside in terms of messaging is that you could you could go to 90 meetings in 90 days and still at the end of that not like who you are right you you mentioned um two words what you said you said it's sort of that finding meaning and purpose one of the most fundamental pillars of well-being is the sense that you have a purpose in your life and that you have meaning and 
is that must be something that part of the the program right is to help them to see that the meaning and purpose they have and help them find that in their lives is that part of the mission I do try to communicate that at every opportunity I will tell you that it is very difficult to be kind of at the bottom and have someone say yeah. wait you just hang on cuz there is a purpose here that you just haven't even begun Gun to understand, because again, I can just remember when someone's saying, I promise you that this this mess, this tragedy, this heartache, this trauma is going to be for 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 a greater good if you allow it. Right. So you could go two ways with it. You could just let it define me and I will just always be a victim to it and I will carry it and it will be heavy. And I always say that there is a woman who hasn't crossed the threshold yet of this house or AA or NA who has so who is carrying a burden and she's carrying it alone until you share your story. And she needs to hear yours like yours. And if you never tell it, your silence serves no one. That's the spiritual purpose, right, that is sometimes not always easy to receive, you know, when someone's in early recovery. Can I just ask one question? Mm -hmm. Looking at, at the woman you are today and what you went through, what was it that made you take that step and, and commit to your own recovery, you know, 10 years ago mm -hmm. when, you, when you made that decision? I, I think that's important because you were in the depths of despair and that something pushed you to say enough is enough i'm just curious would you be willing to share that or i will but i'll probably cry <laughs> okay. i didn't want to make that no, up. <laughs> god's let me hold on to it yes he yeah. has so i had been um in and out of alcoholics anonymous for two years and i call it floundering you know i could put together some time and i was just so confused because i thought it was just about not using Right. If I could just stay sober, that everything would be fine. And it was very painful to find out that that wasn't true, <laughs> that it, although abstaining is pivotal and, and very important, it was about changing who I had become or unbecoming this thing that active addiction had created because I had put together time. I had, you know, I think I had five months at the time. And there was a mo I was five months sober, and I was on a bike ride with my nephews and my son. And this bike ride was very important to me because I felt like I had earned back some honor in the eyes of my brother. And I was, I was picked to go be Auntie Chrissy. And so this, I needed, I needed it to look a certain way. I, I needed my nephews to report back to my brother how awesome Auntie Chrissy was, and she's back, and again, like kind of living up here in my head, not really fully present to this beautiful moment that I had, but attached. And why was I in my head? Because I had guilt and shame and remorse, and I needed to prove something to somebody that I was worthy. So I wasn't here, like living in the moment. I was in my head hustling for what I needed it to be. And my son, um, he started to complain a few minutes into the bike ride that his legs hurt. And I got frustrated because I said yeah we're, we're on a bike ride buddy like this is going to be the most beautiful bike ride ever we don't have time for your legs to hurt so I, I kind of thought he was faking a few minutes later he's 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 frustrated and he's crying he's emoting that his legs are hurting and I am mad 
at this little boy who was not quite five. And the third time he complains, I am furious because he's ruined it. He's ruined the bike ride. I needed it to be this thing because I'm not worthy. And if I could just show um, show somebody I am, they'd see me again. And I, and I yell in his face, like I screamed in his face, like I was mad at him. And when I got back to the car, I carried his bike to the car. I went to put his bike in the car and his tires were flat. And I just felt like, how? How could you do that? Like his little legs hurt. He wasn't faking. And, and it was like this moment, this moment that God gave me that was like, I wasn't present. It wasn't about not drinking. It wasn't about not using. It was about changing. And so I just was ready to change. Okay, I needed to to figure out how to love myself enough to not be trying to hustle for a moment so that I didn't have to be unkind or uncompassionate or unloving to my son. And so I know how much I love him is not enough to get me sober. I know that. But how much I loved him or the pain I caused him was enough to make me want to change. And it was that change that compelled me to really look, to look and see what are the things I'm carrying that no longer serve me. But that's why you speak so eloquently, too, about this, the whole spiritual dimension. It's, it's missing from so many lives, and it's so incredibly important, isn't it, to healing and to, like, that whole present moment um, experience. And it's, it sounds like that's a big part of the, the approach that you take there is that whole spiritual element. that Well, that moment, that moment in the woods made it so crystal clear mm-hmm. to me that I, I was going about this perhaps wrong because mm-hmm. it wasn't just about racking up days. It was about acknowledging that I needed to change. Mm-hmm. And, and how does change happen? It, it changes discipline. You know, changes follow through. Mm-hmm. is integrity. is honesty. It's, it's, it's in the little nooks and crannies of your daily life. Because you could still, you could not drink and be a terrible person. That's for sure. And um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. That, that's that a, really that's uh, clearly impacted us. It's such a wonderful illustration of that outside-in thinking that has to be changed. You know, do I need other things on the outside of me, including other people's opinions? Do those Are those essential for me in order for me to feel a sense of self-worth? Or, as we know now, can I build myself so that I'm fine and what happens on the outside of me is really irrelevant? I mean, I'm fine with myself. And that inner peace is really what the 12 steps were all about. Yeah. And and the big misnomer that I have was that everybody that walked into a 12-step program, speaking now of substances, was only after quitting their substances. And um, boy, that's that's just not the truth. And you know, I'm in the big book myself mm-hmm. for codependency. It was the best yeah. thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. And I used the actual big book because that's the way the gift was given to me by my sponsor. And it changed my life. Yeah. It completely changed my life. And, and if, to look at the... The, the steps on the wall, which I had done, you know, at right. so many meetings. Right. If your goal is to not drink or to abstain, the steps don't make a whole lot of sense. If your goal is to change, then they make sense. Then I go, all right. There might be there might be something to that. Well, it's it's a rearrangement of your emotional furniture. 
right? I mean, it, it rearranges you so that you that's react. That's a great way to put it. You react. It's not my, that's not mine. I get all this <laughs> stuff from other people. But it, you react differently to the same stimulus that you've had before. So really, it fundamentally changed, mm-hmm. as you said before, who I was from the inside out. And most importantly, right size my ego. Um, and I had been walking around thinking I was God and I could fix everything for everybody. And, and not only could I, but it was my responsibility to do that. And the third step prayer was the hardest thing for me to get through because relieved me of, of the bondage, bondage of self, self, the bondage of self. Yeah, the and prison I am in the, because I'm selfish. <laughs> right. And that hit me. I couldn't get through. It took me five times at Fatima Shrine on my knees to get through the third step prayer because that was the crux of my problem, and I didn't even know it. Well, I think because self, when you say selfish, I'm ready to rattle off the thousand things I do for everyone else. Exactly. But who's it about? Exactly. You know something? <laughs> Kristen, we could go on a long show. We should sometime in a big <laughs> Will book. you be my sponsor? <laughs> yeah, but, but no, but this, 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 this happened. This happened for me. In the- That's important to share, that whole part of it, because there are so many family members you know, that are living your, you know, what you went through and to hear that and to understand that as painful as it is, sometimes we have to mm-hmm. distance ourselves, just what you went it's so through. It's so true. And at, at your, at Grit and Grace, are there, um, does AA groups held there or do they go out and find their own or do you have them come in? Both. Both. So we have um, two in-house meetings. One is a big book step study um, and um, the other one is a speaker discussion from time to time, we might do a story night, you know, pick a resident, mm-hmm. name out of a hat, and it's that resident's opportunity mm-hmm. to share their story. And um, they, they love those meetings. They do. I think that they, they, love, they love being strictly women, first of all. I think that there is a, they're less vulnerable mm-hmm. yeah. and more likely to open up and be raw and tap into those painful things that we carry. We carry for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do that, and then we break up the the other meetings that we go to. And, and you were asking me about the structure, and part of the philosophy about grit and grace is that we travel together. We sit in the front, and we hold each other accountable for our behavior at those meetings. Wow! Um, every resident is an extension of grit and grace, and that's you travel together. That's pretty cool. It's not always easy. <laughs> I can get imagine. Your posse. You get your posse. <laughs> but it yeah. is a powerful. Of course. It is a powerful illustration to see two, three rows of women sitting in the front row. And you, but that idea too is holding people accountable. There's an element to that. Why do we have to sit in the front? Yeah, because you can hear better. Yeah. Kristen, how many uh, beds do you have? Um, Thirteen. When I say beds, that's thirteen residents at a time. Yes. I assume you're full. Yes. And. how do you handle admissions? So somebody comes to yeah, you day a, one, uh, and so say they're coming out of, oh, I don't know, New England Recovery Center here in Westboro. They've been there for 60, 90 days. What's the first step for somebody? So my intake process has gotten better. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> Good. That it is, you know, um, learning on the fly at, on, on an intake level is not ideal, but, you know, you have... You figure things out. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's it's the facility that's calling you that might force you to ask some other questions. Um, so like a, a dual diagnosis, mm-hmm. you know, those those residents, those clients are struggling with both mental health crises and substance use. And so you better make sure that you've you've crossed your T's and dotted your I that their mental health is stable. Right. Because you don't want 
to have somebody who's struggling with that try to come in and tap into their substance use. You can't see past the mental health. So let's talk about that just for a second, if I could, Kristen. So somebody comes to you with, say, depression, and and so often these two are mingled. I mean, I don't think... I actually kind of don't really like the dual diagnosis terminology anymore because I think we're all dual diagnosis. Right. But I know what you're talking about, mm, yeah. a scale, a, a, a con- continuum here of sure. severity, right? So people come to you with anxiety or with um, depression. Can they take medication when they're with you? So all the medication is locked at our facility, but mm-hmm. the residents are expected to self-administer. Um, and that is because, you know, we're, we're not staff. Right. We're, we're just supporting you while you transition. Now, some residents qualify for um, a nursing service, mm-hmm. and they'll get a referral from the doctor, and the nurse would come. And that is perhaps for residents who have difficulty being med compliant. Yeah. And it could just be that they forget to take their medications. Right. So it's not that you you can't take mental health. It's, nope. that, it's that, you as you said, there has to be a degree of stability there because you're, sure. you're entering into communal of living. course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not staffed. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes a resident that is not completely stable with their mental health, like they might better be suited for a halfway house sure, of that course. has round-the-clock staff yeah. that can monitor certain, you know, behaviors. or. So um, so at your intake, you get someone out of, say, as I said before, New England Recovery mm-hmm. Center, and, and you do an interview process with them over the phone, right? And what are you looking for? What what is the What are some of the things, the checklist that you're looking for for a match with a resident? So I always, uh, I, I explain, first I explain the the expectations of the house. And I ask the resident, is that mm-hmm. something that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Are you looking for this much structure? And sometimes the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I wish you the best of luck. Here's a number yeah. for a house I know that's not a structure. Mm-hmm. Um, always still trying to be helpful. But I'm asking them, have they ever been in a sober house before? You know, that's, you know, do they, do they know the drill? Have they been around? Do they understand? Um, I'm going to ask them, you know, when was the last time they worked? You know, I, mm-hmm. I received a call the other day. When was the last time you worked? I've never worked. I said, I'm not certain that this would be a great fit for you. Unfortunately, this is a working house. The expectation is people are working. They're getting outside of themselves and outside of this home to find purpose. I'm going to ask them if they drive. You know, like sometimes if they drive and maybe would you be okay not driving for a time while you're on restriction until you've built up some trust and um, s- some network in the area. I do ask them what medications they're on, mm-hmm. and that is not to filter anyone out. Um, it is just to get a baseline, you know, because sometimes people are taking medications that could potentially be um, habit-forming sure. or dangerous for the other residents. Benzodiazepine or something like that. Benzos sure. and pain pills. Yeah, yeah. Those are the ones that... Yeah. Big triggers. I mean, not just the mere presence of them. It's the whole affect of the person taking them. Right. And that affect is uh, very easily recognized by people that have abused those substances in the past. For sure. Right? So it it creates a downstream problem as well. Yeah. And so someone comes to you and they, let's say they pass, Mm -hmm. you know, you you, you say it's a fit. What's their obligation financially right off the bat? So Grit and Grace, we charge $190 per week. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be, we we do ask for two weeks upon arrival, but Mm. I'll be honest with you, that's... Yeah. There's not a whole lot of people that have that. Yeah. And how could they? They've been sitting in treatment. <laughs> sure. Um, and they probably burned bridges. And there's not a lot of people who have, you know, hope and faith in them anymore, ready to open up their wallets or write a check. Right. So I can tell you that if the resident is a good fit, um, 
that finances aren't a reason that I wouldn't take them. Yeah, you work with them. And then uh, just last question on the details, but I think it's important people understand what type of structure we're talking about here um, directly from the source. Um, how long do they have to get a job so they're paying their own rent? I, I mean, ideally, I like to give them two weeks to decompress. Yeah. Like, I'm not... They're on restriction, although, you know, accommodations can be made on restriction. I'm not trying to hold anybody back here. If they are, if they have arrived and they have an interview at Dunkin' Donuts and they want to go, we're going to get you there. Um, But I'd say give somebody two weeks to decompress and to settle. And then by the end of that first month, you should have a job. Great. This is Safe Radio. My name is Jim Derrick. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Ann Bergen, and our guest, Kristen Silva. And Kristen is the proprietor of Grit and Grace Sober Living for Women. And if you want to take a look, just go to their their website, gritandgracesoberlivingforwomen.org. And uh, you'll see everything you need to know about this house. It's it's a beautiful home. Uh, we did some Narcan training there. And yes. our CEO, Jen Knight-Levine, came back and just said, Jim, where do you, where do you yeah. meet Kristen A? And B, this house is spectacular. And uh, I just I just have one final question that I, in terms of when you there's such a need, you know, for sober homes, particularly for women. If you had a you know magic wand, what would you say the biggest needs are? What would help make you be more successful? Is it funding? Is it is it more awareness of what you're doing? What are the things when you say this would make it better? What would it be that you would say is a you know anything that helps the transition of the women? I think is helpful. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of scholarship opportunities for these women. You know, so like I said, I wouldn't let finances be a reason that I wouldn't allow a resident who sounded like a good fit that was going to add value to our house. But honestly, St. Vincent's de Paul in Attleboro is probably the only resource I have to help these women scholarship. And oftentimes they will provide the residents with two weeks, sometimes up to a month. That's it. You know, there are, you could Google scholarship opportunities and you know, it's it's a very difficult, you're sending these, you know, Google forms off to nowhere, they land nowhere, and you never get a response. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear that the, st- the stigma around people with substance use disorders is that they're lazy, and they're moochers, and they're just taking from the system. And um, if the houses run well, I think that the resources, if they were available, would be put to, to good use. Mm. I- I'm if if a woman gets a scholarship, I'm still forcing her to to get a job. Mm-hmm. You don't get to sit home for thirty days because St. Vincent's paid your rent. That is not what that was. Um, so, in terms of giving them some breathing room, so that they're not weighed down by the financial burden of it, so that they can maybe focus on themselves, because there's other things to do other than get a job. Some of these women haven't been to a doctor, yeah, a dentist, a therapist, a psychiatrist. Don't get me going on the psychiatrist because. They, they leave these treatment centers with a 30-day script, and the, doc, and, the, and the appointment is four months out. That's ridiculous. You've just kicked the can. You've kicked the can down the road. And never mind that they're just kind of throwing, like, darts in the dark about, like, they're medicating emotions. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a big problem. Our, our system of care is so broken. And the continuity of care, forget continuity, there just isn't any continuity of care. Um, but I, what I like about what you're saying is that you're providing uh, that, that structure and that, and that 
you've got the foresight from personal experience yes. and lived experience as well as the experience of your husband and others in the in the field to know the questions that are going to come up that your residents haven't even thought of yet mm-hmm. and the roadblocks are, that are going to come up. Um, and that leads me to my next question. We talked a little bit about off the air. Um, I'm really of the opinion that it would be really helpful to the sober home industry to have a more robust, um, I'm going to use the word certification, that maybe there could be a, a track of learning that sober home proprietors could go through to, that talks about harm reduction, that talks about some of the principles that you're talking about, because not all sober home proprietors come into the business the way you are uh, with lived experience and with, um, um, you know, a dedication to, to structure. Um, a sober home can be opened by Ann and I tomorrow just because we qualify for a mortgage on a house, which is a little startling when you realize the fragility uh, of people that are entering this 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 part of their recovery and this this part of their care and how important it is to them and the vulnerability of these residents. So um, it's just my editorial opinion that I think that there could be more robust either certification or programming available to sober homes where they could put a staff and say, yeah, we've been through the XYZ uh, sober home educational track, and that gives us a gold seal, if you will. So I, as it stands right now, what MASH provides, Massachusetts Alliance for Sober Housing, which is the body that governs certified houses, mm-hmm. um, I know that they do the best they can. Yes. Absolutely. Agreed. Do I think... The question is, do I think that there should be more? I think that there should be more training required by owners and operators outside of that 101. You know, you and I had a conversation about, you know, harm reduction when there is possibly a resident who, you know, is not compliant, return to use. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like that's a very delicate moment. Mm -hmm. I think there should be training about that. I mean, it. There is there are suggestions when you're writing your paperwork, you know, like you have to have all your documents certified by MASH, you know. I think there needs to be more training there. Mm-hmm. I think that there should be, this is just my opinion, that these houses should be visited more than once a year. Yeah. There you go. Agreed. And MASH. Massachusetts Alliance for Sober Housing. I'm sorry, yeah. Massachusetts Alliance for Sober Housing. It was a good first step. Mm-hmm. It is a good first step. I um, love them. They yeah. are so responsive. Yeah, and before them, there was nothing. Yes. Uh, but it's not a state certification. Mm-hmm. This is just a, a nonprofit. It's voluntary compliance. It's not mandated. Um, so we're a long way away. But I think even an educational track that would give you a gold seal, you know, it's like if you want to be an accountant, you can be a bookkeeper or you can be a CPA. Mm-hmm. We all want maybe want a CPA for a certain level of, of complexity with our finances. And the same thing with sober living. You, you could know that you're going to a house that's been trained up. And it just seems to make sense to me. That's all. I think that another, you know, thing that it, it saddened me when I went to the owner operator course for MASH. Um, how many people weren't in recovery that were trying to open up sober houses. That's alarming to me. And it was, why? Because I would say 90% of the people that weren't in recovery, their reference was there's money to be made here. There you go. And why not open a rooming house? Because you can, if you call it a sober house, you can put more than one bed in the room. That's why. This is the devil, literally in the details. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the part that uh, it screwed up Florida. Florida was an absolute nightmare. We had some yeah, uh, for years. Yeah, you, I remember you, that. I'm sure you're aware sure. of that. Florida yeah. was like the wild west for sober living. I I personally know somebody very close to me, my son, 
who was um, uh, taken out of an AA meeting, encouraged to relapse, go back through detox into a sober home uh, where they took his insurance card and in the course of 48 hours billed the insurance company $36,000 for services, of which half of it was paid by the insurance company before Mm -hmm. they figured it out. Um, That's the type of criminals that were allowed to open sober homes. Opportunists. Okay. In the worst way. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In the worst way. Right. The opportunity is made on the back of these residents. Right, right, exactly. And, And there was nothing preventing you know, what the heck, there's no background check to be a sober home proprietor. So that's discouraging. But the encouraging thing is that I think more and more people realize that lived experience is your PhD. Hmm. There you go. Is there anything that could have prepared you for what you're doing no. today no. more than being in recovery yourself? I, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely, there's not a book that I could read that could have prepared me. Right. And, and made you a better candidate Except for what the, you're doing. knowing like the depths of it, right? yeah. the joys and the sorrows. Yeah. But that's why we're just, we're just so grateful that you, that you came here today and for us to learn the story, especially your story is so powerful. It is. And the work that you're doing, I don't know, I feel like condescending to say, I just feel so proud of you. I, you know, it's just because when, when people go out into the world, particularly young people, and say, I'm going to give back and I'm going to make a difference. And in this world where it's there's just so much incivility and there's so much when you have it's so it, it's so inspiring for me, you know, like it, to watch, like, say, the next generation coming up and saying it, it's in good hands when we have people, you know, like Kristen. So you and me both. Me in, and right. I, I feel I think you hit the nail right mm-hmm. in the head. And um, uh, th- what a power couple. Right. And I right. still That's need right. to go meet um, your husband. But uh, what a power couple, because. Because they're leading with their heart. Absolutely. Um, and, no question. And uh, Kristen flips that model on its upside down. I know I can speak for you. It's the recovery. It's the stories that hit you. It's the young women that are going to come out more than sober. Right. They're going to come out in recovery. That's where you're making your emotional money. And that's the most important thing. And as a role model for these women. And as a role model. Right. As exactly. a role model. It's just to say, okay, you did it. I can. You believe in me. You're putting out that that leaf of hope for all these women. So, that's all I needed. Yeah. Back then was just a little crumb of hope. There you go. Right, and somebody to kind of hold my hand, put the fires out, and you for know. a little while. Yeah. And so that's that's what it. we have here. We have magic at this house. We really do. I'm like in awe, and sometimes I I like could cry. It's I like happened. the way you said it. We have magic in this house. And and Kristen, I know that you must have some tremendous stories of success. Um, is, are there any that you can share, you know, anonym, anonymously about just the type of trans transformation, the type of transformation you see like among your residents? Yeah. So we've been open since June 6th. Yeah. And um, I'll just, I'll share this one little story because it, it just speaks to like the notion of having faith. Right. It's like blind faith when you don't when you don't feel necessarily connected to God, because, you know, maybe that part of your brain's not really fully healed yet where you don't feel inspiration and joy and connection and beauty and light. You know, you're still kind of in the mocus part of your recovery or that maybe you just have come to the table still kind of with an antipathy towards that God that 
like if you're anything like me, it was I was Portuguese and Catholic, and there was a crucifix the size of my whole body that hung on the wall, and and that <laughs> God true. was watching you, and especially when you did something wrong, yes. and never when you did something good. I remember that. Yes. So I had a fear. You know, I didn't have a loving connection with God. It was fear based. Um, but I had a resident who was talking about not knowing if her sponsor was the right sponsor, and I said, Well, have you guys talked about what her process is in terms of steps? <clears throat> You know, like, I understand building rapport, but we are also about getting busy with step work. She's like, no. And I said, well, do this. Pray tonight and ask God to help show you the direction you're supposed to go in. And watch for the answer and then decide. Don't make any decisions tonight. She woke up in the morning and there was a text message from her sponsor saying, I'd like to start step one with you (laughs) as soon as possible. (laughs) And she's like... Chrissy, like, <laughs> it, it worked. Yeah. It worked. It's just a small moment, yeah. you know, just one of those moments where, like, you just had faith, and you sat back and saw what it could do. It could, if you look, it's right there. The answer is right there. It's a great story. Yeah. Well, Kristen, I can't thank you enough for coming in. This was uh, my pleasure. For your work with Grit and Grace. Again, it's Grit and Grace Sober Living for Women. That is the website, gritandgracesoberlivingforwomen.org. Spell all of that out. And Kristen, do you want to give a phone number? Um, Sure. I I can be reached by cell. Um, The cell phone number is 857-241-0902. And again, my phone's pretty much always on, so. Well, I, I have to tell you, Kristen, I'm so inspired. Too, Aren't you, in? I knew it was going to be good. I just... By you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling this isn't the last time we're going to see I each other. I hope not. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so for our guests, Kristen Silva and my co-host, Dr. Ann Bergen, my name's Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Safe Radio, and we will see you next week. <laughs>